0: Finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dread of Brain, and I'm Nate.
1: And I'm Andrea.
0: And this is our, like, time... Well, no, it won't be. This... I, I was gonna say, this is like our most like, timely episode, because we're talking about a book that came out pretty recently, that was just recently nominated, or just recently announced to be a finalist for a Hugo Award. We're recording in the midst of the great pandemic of 2020. And we're drinking that weird whipped coffee thing that was hot on Instagram and TikTok like <laughs> a week ago. But then this is going to come out several weeks from now, and all of that stuff is going to be outdated.
1: But that's pretty much on brand for us. Yeah. So,
0: uh,
1: I'm excited about this week's book.
0: Yeah. So for context, in case no one's listened to the podcast before, this is a podcast where we Read things and then talk about them. That's the thing I say in every episode. Um, Andrea is a librarian. I'm a writer, not a terribly successful one, or anything, but I write stuff. You can find some of my writing in this podcast feed. Also, Andrea is my mom. So, so
1: that's our thing.
0: That's our thing. There's many things happening. On this podcast. But the main thing that's happening is that we read things and we talk about them. Do you want to tell people what we read for this particular episode, even though they've already s- probably seen it in the episode description? So,
1: for this episode, we read the novella To Be Taught If Fortunate by Becky Chambers. It's published in 2019 mm-hmm. and it's a standalone novella. She does write a series called The Wayfarer series, which is very popular. This is a short standalone novella.
0: This is her fourth book, right? And the other three are all in that series? Yes. Correct? Yes. Have you read any of The Wayfarers? I haven't. I have heard good things, though.
1: I haven't, but I was reading about it because she is one of. She is very unique in that her first novel was self published and it became very successful. And then she signed a contract with a traditional publisher and they republished her first. Volume of the series, The Wayfarers.
0: I've been thinking about self-publishing recently because not like I've been thinking about doing it, but I've been thinking about it as an idea. And I feel like our relationship to self-publishing in America, like, is weird because unless it is a huge success, it does like I feel like there's an argument that it is a liability. I think for, for a writer
1: for a long time, especially as a librarian. The idea of self-publishing was related to the concept of vanity publishing. Mm-hmm. And I think that vanity vanity publishing has that sort of reputation of being sort of like a weird self-published book about, you know, you write a book about the history of the Confederate flag or something that won't be, you know, that's personal to you but wouldn't be mainstream. You publish it because you don't want any input from an editor and you don't want to be, you don't want any kind of input from anybody criticizing your writing. So you self publish it. A lot of weird like things like, you know, regional cookbooks or murder mysteries Mm -hmm. or, you know, memoirs or histories of people's families. There's the kind of things that as a librarian you think might be considered vanity publishing. But I think because, publishing has changed and moved into a digital format self-publishing can be done on a professional level and i think that's what she did
0: but i think within fiction in america at least there's this idea that like if you're gonna self-publish you have to be prepared to only ever self-publish because it's th- There's this thing that goes around where like agents will see that you have self-published a book and it has like no reviews or God forbid, like three reviews and one and two of them are negative and they will cease to take you seriously. I think that... um... And so I think it was a big, I am always intrigued by people like her who get success after starting a self-publishers because it feels like a big risk and like a genuinely brave thing to do sometimes.
1: But I think in her benefit, she is a good writer, and mm-hmm. she self-published in a quality way. This isn't like, you know, somebody wrote a murder mystery in their basement and they sent it to Smashwords, because that whole, like, e-book phenomenon where everyone could publish a book, they they didn't have any editorial control. There was no, you know, reading, no correction. There was lots of typos, lots of consistency problems. People who didn't understand how to write a long-form novel were publishing things, and they had a lot of problems. And I think that sort of kind of gave self-publishing in a digital format a bad mm-hmm. kind of reputation.
0: But it's interesting because I feel like self-publishing only really has this particular negative association in, like, prose fiction. Because if you look at comics... Uh, I mean, the indie comic is a huge thing. Self-publishing is a big deal. And any kind of guide that you look at for, like, how do I make it in comics? How do I become a cartoonist or whatever? A lot of them, they say, step one, like, self-publish something. Because in those spaces, it is a valid... Like, the editors see the ability to... The editors and publishers see the ability to finish and produce an entire work as being an asset... Whereas like it is not necessarily viewed that way in uh in fiction, and then also another thing that's been on my mind recently I've been thinking about and reading some Japanese light novels, which are like you know they're they're like a little bit shorter than like a novella, and they're generally published like serialized uh and a lot of the really successful light novel series that go on to get like big mainstream high production value anime adaptations start as something called web novels which are essentially self-published online serialized novels
1: well i think you're saying i think we're like this is kind of like a disruption in the stream of like traditional publishing there's lots of different kinds of like things that are being done that wouldn't have been done if there wasn't a digital component you see, lots of well, not so much now, but like in the early two thousands, every single popular blog was turned into a book. Yeah, yeah. And now you're seeing that with like Twitter accounts and people with Instagram accounts and stuff like that. So those kinds of people would not have been accepted into the traditional publishing. They would not have gotten an agent and gotten published in those ways if it wasn't for digital.
0: Yeah, but, but I then think that,
1: that.
0: I mean, no, what were you saying?
1: But I think like the predominance of e has sort of changed the way mass publishing is done and there is this sort of open area where if you produce a quality work like you know a really good comic book or a really well-written novel then you can gain success from self-publishing mm-hmm. so i think that's interesting
0: yeah it's just like I think it's strange and concerning, and I'm interested to see where it evolves, but it does feel like now, unless your self-published work is wildly successful, anything less than that becomes a liability when you're trying to move out of the self-published space into working with an established publisher.
1: I think so, because I think, like you said, that some of the self-publishing publishers have this sort of connotation where they sort of pander to like, weirdos, and there's a lot of really weird self-publishing going on. Yeah, yeah.
0: I think, like, you know, you were saying, like, oh, when I think about self-publishing, I think about, like, these, like, niche texts and, like, regional cookbooks and stuff. But when I think about self-publishing, I think about, like, a dude who, like, has, in the span of three years, written 60 books in something called the Starshine Nebula Confederacy.
1: Oh, sure, sure.
0: And they have a very complicated internal politics and a lot of weird opinions about slavery
1: yeah well i think that's it i mean some of that stuff so like in a traditional publisher with an agent a lot of these book ideas would have been weeded out but if you decide to self-publish there's no sort of stopgap that says like okay maybe this isn't a good idea or maybe this needs more work you decide when you want to publish it and you you know, if you're willing to pay to have it published, or you're willing to put it out there for free, then there's no editorial control. But I think we've ne- we talk about this a lot. There are some even published novels by traditional authors that go through traditional publishing and editorial um, sequence that could still use with more editing.
0: Well, sure, that's all. Yeah, I mean, I think the the, the allure of becoming, besides like getting money, obviously, the allure of becoming a successful artist is you are under less scrutiny like you're the 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 amateur writer the first time artist is under more scrutiny in the early stages of production than an established artist ever will be
1: Oh yeah It's way
0: harder to get your first book published than it is to get your third book published
1: I mean we talked about this a lot when we talked about John Irving I mean his early work you can tell was edited, was, you know, went Mm -hmm. through this sort of arduous writing process and he produced really good quality work and now he's John Irving and he can publish any shit that he wants. Yeah, well, I
0: mean, this is where, like, the sophomore slump comes from, right? Like, you're under a lot of scrutiny, you're working really hard, you're trying to prove yourself, you put a ton of work into the first album, you have less eyes on you and less time to work on the second album and a lot of times it's less good and that's true across... All different media.
1: But I have to say, I mean, I read a lot of books. Sure. And
0: I... You read a lot of debut novels, too.
1: Right. That's one of my areas that I'm most interested in is the first novel. But when I'm looking at a book and I'm reading a synopsis, no matter where I find it, if it's audio or if it's in print, I don't always look at who the publisher is.
0: That's not a thing I've cared about until... I started actively trying to get stuff published. And now yep. it's interesting. To, I'm interested in being like, okay, you know, I like this writer who published them. Like,
1: but I also, not,
0: but then it's like, you don't really work directly. Like you're not until you, you know, you're trying to get an agent, not, you know, most of the time not contacting a publisher directly. Right.
1: Exactly. But I think you like just for like magazines and, you know, websites and things that do like short stories that's one of the reasons why they don't have open submissions all the time because they would be inundated and probably are inundated by so many writers. Many of them aren't talented. Well, I mean,
0: writing has the lowest skill floor of entry because pretty much, like, you know, almost everyone that has reached even adolescence in, you know, most places knows how to technically write Like we learn how to, oopsies, I got to silence my phone. Uh, We learn how to, you know, do the technical, physical skill of writing when we're in kindergarten. But you don't like, you don't fail kindergarten if you don't know how to draw or play the clarinet. Right. You got to go and learn those things later. So anyone can technically write. And I think that's why... Bases like that. That's why the self. What we we're talking about there's so many weird, you know, untested, underdeveloped ideas in self-publishing. That's why any place that opens up, uh, open submissions gets flooded with all sorts of stuff because it doesn't take that much investment to write something. It takes a lot of investment to write something good.
1: Well, that's what I think. Like in the early days of e-readers, like when people had things like Nooks and things like that there were a whole bunch of these um websites that would say like ebook of the day or free ebook mm-hmm. and every time you would sign up for those newsletters everything that they were offering were these weird self-published books that had so many typos or duplicate pages or just really weird formatting because people were just publishing their own thing any way that they wanted and there really wasn't any standardization yeah. And it kind of was, like, annoying.
0: hmm I also think there's, like, a thing where it's, like, you know, we've talked before, I think, on this podcast about, like, zines and stuff. Or, you know, we talked about the mini-comics when we were with yeah. discussing Becky Cloonan, and it's, like, that stuff's more appealing to me. I think the reason that that stuff is more appealing and it has a higher general success rate than, like, someone do, doing an equally guerrilla thing with just writing is that, like you got to put more thought into the execution because you have to make a physical object and design something aesthetically. So like, I don't know what my point was with that, but it's like, maybe people should make more zines, I guess. But
1: I'm kind of like, I'm all for people making zines and I'm all for people self-publishing because a lot of times you can be a good writer, but you can be avant-garde or you can be out of the norm of Mm. mass marketing which would be a success and you have a hard time finding an agent or a publisher and sometimes the agents and the publishers just don't understand what's going on and I can think of like a lot of writers today that might have a problem being published like you like you you mean like a
0: lot of writers from the past would have a hard time being published today
1: yeah like you think about like John Kennedy O'Toole
0: well he had a hard time being published right
1: well that's exactly it and that became one of the like Shining successes in the 20th century, but all the time that he was trying to get a publisher, he could not find a publisher. He could not get an agent.
0: His I mean, story I, scares the ever-loving shit out of me. So, I don't like thinking about it.
1: But every one of those people who reviewed that book and passed on that manuscript were wrong about that manuscript. You think of someone like Philip K. Dick, who had a hard time being published.
0: Yeah, but he—he's a good example. I mean, like, there's nothing wrong. With just, like, wanting to write the thing you want to write, and, like, it doesn't matter to you how many people see it or if you get paid. But Philip K. Dick's a good example of a guy who he tried in one area, and he switched it up, and he found a lot of success doing something else and working in the stuff that he wanted to do originally.
1: But it's the same thing. I mean, there's a lot... I mean, you think about him. You think about, like, H.P. Lovecraft. You think about... We talked about them with the Conan stories, like how Yes, I think
0: about all those people constantly.
1: (laughs) Like how hard it was for them to even find they ended up like being published in a pulp magazine. Yeah. But you know, today now people are re-examining that body of work and saying same thing with Edgar Allan Poe. Same Mm. thing. Published in sort of these sort of shady, sketchy literary magazines. But it's like and Charles Dickens, I mean, publishing in, like, pulp magazines under different names. I mean, they they didn't have traditional publishing paths to get their work done. But True. their work stands as having value. So sometimes a traditional publishing industry is wrong. Would somebody publish, like, David Foster Wallace now? If you were an agent and but, he showed up with Infinite Jest, would you look at that and you'd be like... Dude, you need ten editors to get this thing <laughs> off the
0: ground. But that's like a different thing, though, right? Because like, there, there's he's coming out of academia. Like, there's a whole other thing going on there. He, he wasn't. If, if David Froster Wallace was just some dude that like worked at the N.P. and wrote that book in his mom's basement, no, probably he wouldn't ever get it published. But like, he had the benefit of like. Coming out of that, that academia. There's a whole thing we talked about in that, the episode where we discussed him and Barth, the like, the, you know, the writer that is also a professor. Right. Like, and all, and all that stuff. But yeah, I mean, it's all about the space, right? Like if he tried to publish infinite, if David Foster Wallace didn't go to school or like was bad at school or whatever, he probably would have ended up being a science fiction writer. Like, you probably would have had the Philip K. Dick career path of, like, okay, well, now let me write a book about, like, spaceships, but I'll work in this thing that I'm interested in that's, like, about, like, advertising or whatever.
1: But that's and that'll be, like,
0: a sub-theme. But It's, blah, like, blah, the blah. same
1: thing with Henry Miller. A lot of write- uh, publishers wouldn't touch him because he was so dirty. And now look at this now. It's, I like, look. you cannot publish a mass market, a number one bestseller, Without having like some kind of like softcore porn incident in it, because people are so addicted to like Fifty Shades of Grey that like they want, you know, raciness. They want like, you know, things that they made fun of in romance novels, they now want in all the novels that they read.
0: Look, I just recently um, saw with my eyes Henry Miller on film, (laughs) and let me tell you, I wouldn't touch him. i was I was watching Reds. Um, this is a huge digression uh, but if anybody hasn't seen Reds, you should check out Reds. It's a movie Warren Beatty directed is about uh, Jack Reed, the journalist that ten days that shut the world that like you know he was uh, reporting on the revolution in Russia. but that movie has like documentary style talking heads mm-hmm. and so like I'm start, you start watching the movie. And there's this long opening credit sequence, which is maybe one of the weaker parts of the movie because it's just like black with white text. Uh, But they do the credits for people who are actually like acting in the movie, which includes Jersey Kaczynski, which is interesting.
1: That is interesting.
0: Uh, And then they do these longer credits for The Witnesses, who are the talking heads people. And one of them was Henry Miller. And like the first time I'm watching it, I see his name pop up and I'm like, wait, Henry Miller? Like, Henry Miller? Weird. I wonder what he's going to have to say in this. And I didn't know what he looked like <laughs> at the time. So I'm like waiting for like, I wonder which one's Henry Miller. And then a dude pops up and it's like a bald guy, like a silk shirt. And he goes, I bet there was just as much fucking back then as there is today. And I was like, oh, it's Henry Miller. There he is. <laughs> Don't even need to look up what he looks like. I know for a fact that's definitely him. I was like, I I, I didn't know what his voice sounded like. And it was like, that's ex- I can't imagine him having any other voice. You should look William S. Burroughs is the same way.
1: Yeah, I was gonna this is what made me think of that. You should look because I know there's like recordings of Henry Miller reading his own work.
0: Yeah, I might seek those out. I would be but he's like he sounds like he like woke up and like ate like eggs Benedict but served on a pack of cigarettes <laughs> instead of an English muffin <laughs> for breakfast every day.
1: I could definitely see that.
0: So all of this was to say that I think it's really cool that Becky Chambers uh, managed to find such success at self-publishing. Do we have more to say about about this general topic of like publishing and all that before we get into the actual meat of the novella?
1: I think that says enough. She self-published.
0: Mm-hmm. It was
1: a, it was a fan favorite. Got a lot of critical reviews. She was signed with an agent. Signed with a publisher. And the rest of her novels are published in the traditional way. Yeah. And then this. To Be Taught, If Fortunate, is a standalone novella, mm-hmm. which I don't know if you mentioned it or not, but it's nominated for... Yeah,
0: I mentioned it. It's a Hugo finalist for a novella for this right. upcoming Hugo Awards. I forget what else is on she, that list.
1: She also won a Hugo for the best series for her Wayfarer series, which I think has four books in it at this point. That's um, cool. Yeah, so this book is really interesting. The title is sort of a take on the quote from uh, the Secretary General of the UN from the 1970s who recorded a message. His name was Kurt Waldheim. Waldheim?
0: I don't actually know. Waldheim, maybe? It's on the, the, the gold record, right? Right.
1: He made a quote on the gold record, and part of the quote, which he paraphrased, is that the gist of it the humans were willing to teach and to be taught if fortunate and i think that's where she she took the title sort of from that Mm -hmm. because as you get into the story you realize that it's sort of related to like that whole optimistic view of like space travel as education as information and not for profit
0: can i do a little bit of a minor digression about the gold record Sure. This has become like this really powerful, like, st- um, what's the word? I'm, is there a pre- prefix that means like dealing with science? Like, not like science is not a word, but like, is there something that's like that?
1: <laughs> I don't know. It's weird that I don't know that. i working in like I'm going to say science
0: It's <laughs> become this kind of science mystical talisman, this like perfect sigil of like ideal of like this specific stripe of like Carl Sagan-y, Isaac asimov like pure human optimism rooted in like science and curiosity and it's this like beautiful thing for people that comes up with a lot in science fiction and just an imagery dealing with like a hopeful future but I always associate it with beast wars. <laughs> Because it's one of the, like, at the start of that series, it's one of the MacGuffins, and there's, like, a shot of Megatron holding the gold record. And so that's always sort of burned into my brain. Like, anytime that comes up and people are, like, waxing poetic about human achievement and using this record as, like, a symbol, I always think about a robot that turns into a purple T-Rex.
1: I think the sort of fascination with... This the era, the Voyager series, and with the golden record, and with that sort of 60s science... Space race. Space race, is that people believed in science. Sure. And then science also had a positive impact at their time on their lives. And so I think they were sort of, they're coming out of that post-1950s sort of atomic age where you know, socially and economically and, like, environmentally, they're living off the sort of residue of the information that came out of the space program. So we have lots of new technology, lots of processed foods, lots of things that make our lives better, mm-hmm. and we see science as good. And yeah. I think, like, the science fiction reflects that period of time. Sure. And I think she... This is not set... This is set in the way future. Sure. But I think her positive view of the space exploration process comes from the fact that she's instead of building on that sort of 1960s pro-science kind of vibe she's deal she's like working with this citizen scientist kind of thing where that their space program is funded by the people who are interested into intellectual pursuit of furthering space exploration it's not corporations it's individual people and they're traveling the galaxy to gather information to know that information not to profit from it not to any advantage they are not going out into space to sort of find new colonies or to space mine it like a lot of 70s science fiction they're going out to learn more about the world and the galaxy that they live in
0: Yeah, that's actually, I like that you brought that up, because that was going to lead into a thing I was just about to talk about, which is the thing that is potentially icky about some of that, like, rah-rah, you know, 60s Cold War, space race uh, stuff, is it is rooted in this, like, nationalism, and this, like, American chauvinism. And this is, divorces that from that. It's that hope for space with none of the nationalism. It's a little bit like, we can talk about whether or not this vision of the, like, citizen crowdfunded space exploration agency actually is plausible. But I think it's a lot more palatable to me than the stuff that's rooted in the, like, um, the patriotism. Well, yeah. And the Cold War, like, rivalry with Russia.
1: If you look at, like, what people admired about the space program and the astronauts, I mean, they're all sort of very macho, upstanding, cowboy-type men. Yeah. You know, and this story is about, like, four sort of ragtag team of, like, astronauts who go out into
0: space. I wouldn't call them ragtag. They're pretty competent.
1: Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, but, but they're but they're like different. Yeah, yeah. So they're let's not talk like, a little bit about what the story's about before we.
0: Well, I was going to say that I think the thing that makes this book story like genuinely great is it starts from this like yay science space thing, and in the end, the kind of tragic twist of it is it reveals itself as kind of a potential elegy for that sort of mindset, right? I mean, it might not be like that's the thing at the end is it's like it's kind of got a lore it's got a lorax ending, which let me tell you, like a capital l capital E lorax ending that's like my favorite shit, yeah, like where it turns the camera back on you and it's like, well, what are you gonna do now? You get to decide whether or not this story has a happy ending, and I fucking love that shit
1: so the story is about four scientists who work in the citizen science space program
0: yeah they i forget it's oca right what well, do you did you note down what that acronym is because i don't remember it i'm so bad with stuff like that
1: i don't remember but i did remember that their ship is called the locky six
0: yeah yeah they're part of the locky program but yeah so it's this like it's it is like a it's almost like public or not public radio but it's like this like funded by the people crowd funded crowd sourced space program.
1: I don't know if she ever says it cuz even in the beginning she starts out by calling it the OCA spacecraft Meridian, which is the ship that Yeah, that it.
0: the ship is the Meridian. They I think that when she starts talking about her pet cuz there's this really cool part.
1: So let's in the wait. Bit. Let's let's get it. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. Okay. The plot of the story <laughs> is there are four astronauts on this ship that their mission is to visit four planets Mm-hmm. to gain information and then return home but the the mission is supposed to go on for a, a very long I think it's time 70 years right or
0: something like that uh they're visiting specifically exoplanets which the second i read the phrase exoplanet like my brain ignites i'm like oh yeah this is the good shit um and they're looking for life is the other thing. So there's they're, a lot... They're
1: looking to observe life. They don't want to interact with it. They don't want to control it, eat yeah. it, capture it, bring it back. They're not
0: surveying for potential colonialism, like you said. They're just there to observe and learn, to be taught if fortunate. Um, the weird thing about that title is it kept making me... Again, this is getting out of ourselves. But the title kept making me expect intelligence, which maybe is intentional. Um... But that never really happens, or not necessarily. I mean, it, they never communicate with any of the aliens. Um, but yeah, so they're supposed to go to these four worlds, and the structure of the book is basically okay.
1: It's called the Open Cluster Astronautics.
0: I love a acronym that has a word "cluster" in it.
1: Yes, Open Cluster <laughs> Astronautics.
0: Okay, cool.
1: And the goal, of what they said, in, it says right here in one of the pages. The idea behind open-cluster astronautics was simple. Citizen-funded space flight. Exploration for exploration's sake. A political international non-profit.
0: I mean, I love it. Like, in, in, uh, you know, concept. Like, great. It's like, divorced from nationalism, but it's also not privatized space exploration. I've been like, okay, I really like this book. I and I really like this they're... kind of book. Like, this is very, like, Rendezvous with Rama. It was giving me a lot of those vibes of, like, this is a story about, like, competent, passionate people exploring these new spaces. But I have been dreading, for years, people starting to write books like that where the characters work for, like, SpaceX. <laughs> and for, like, <laughs> private... To- like, there are few...
1: Well, it was interesting, we'll go into it later, but in my notes I actually wrote down some novels that I thought were the opposite of what this was, and a lot of them were older novels, where it was kind of like, the novel was about like being in space for profit. Yeah, yeah. So I think there is like a history of that as a type of science fiction, about these sort of Space mi- I mean, come on, space miners. That's a yeah. huge like genre well, of I mean, science fiction. That, this is
0: very like this is one of those things where it's like almost y but without his like libertarian ideology. Also I think it is interesting to contrast this no- novella with the most recent science fiction novella we've read, which was The Star Pit, which is almost like a complete tonal and philosophical opposite from this.
1: But I felt like this was written by someone who still really loves the idea of, like, science yeah. as being good. Well, I mean, Which just like, a reaction to what's going on in culture now, where a lot of people are, like, anti-science.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, what this book ends up being is someone who loves science laying out why they love it and then turning to you, the reader, and the populace in general and saying, are you going to break my heart?
1: Exactly. Um,
0: but... Uh, yeah, privatized space exploration is one of the, of the most awful phrases that can exist in the human language, or in the English language.
1: So, this is the story of the four space explorers that we mm. mentioned, and they go to four planets. Yeah, so and the main sh- character is Ariadne. And she's the um, engineer and pilot. She's the engineer and pilot. Which I
0: like that she's like the least. She's, well, she said she's not a scientist. Right. But she is a, a, a like, the, you know, the presumably like Becky Chambers and like a lot of science fiction fans, she's a person who's not a scientist, who cares about science and knowledge and has uh, a lot of investment in it, which I think is a nice touch. Right. And, and then... Oh,
1: then there's Elena. She's the oldest member of the crew.
0: Yeah. I forget what her actual specialization is. Because the other crew members, there's a geologist and a botanist. Right. I forget what Elena's deal is. So,
1: and then Chikande is the...
0: I think he's the youngest and he's the botanist. And
1: botanist, And then Jack is the geologist.
0: Yeah. And he is uh, a trans man and a handsome, charismatic dude.
1: I like that the characters were like... They were all different, but they lived and worked together. You know, they had, like, there was different generations, sexual orientations. Nationalities. Nationalities, level of, like, scientific interest or knowledge, which I thought was nice. I mean, I thought that was very sort of inclusive and kind of, like, that's what you would think would happen in a citizen-run space program that would be open to having different kinds of people work on these ships. Like they weren't all Han Solos or Space Cowboys. Yeah, or, or... like yeah, they're
0: not all like square jawed. I mean, that is a problem with a lot of the older uh novels that are in this style is like everybody is like this like square jawed super astronaut or they're like, you know, an overly emotional woman or something. And I think the characters are the one of the things that makes this book really special in comparison to other similar ones is this really strong focus on characterization and on the small details of the characters' interactions. There's no point in the book where there's, like, a huge blow-up conflict where the characters, like, yell at each other and are sent ag- set against each other. But there are lots of little moments where personalities and emotions kind of rub up against each other the wrong way. There's, like, this really subtle, like, long game of <laughs> of sort of... Uh, elena almost turning heel throughout the course of the the book where she's just like it's this really accurate depiction of like working along someone that you respect and like who's just like a little too persnickety and a little too controlling and the like the small frictions that evolve out of those interactions and then like with jack you have this person who is like very likable but also overly emotional and kind of, like, has some problems with their self-image. Uh, like, there's this really, we'll get to it when we start going through the things that specifically happen, but there's this, like, really bru- almost brutal moment uh, with him where he makes a decision and then some stuff happens right. <laughs> as a result of it. And then Shikande is, like, this more, like, quiet, reserved, internal person and he, the most <laughs> brutal thing in the book happens with him uh and that's really good too
1: i like that the story opens up and it talks with ariadne and it's about her experience of waking up after being um after a long space sleep and then it talks about like the reality of, like, what that would do to the human body and how people would feel after work, like, waking up from this sort of deep, dreamless sleep. And I really like that. Like, it was sort of realistic because, like, you see a sci-fi movie and they're in space and they're in their pods and then they pop out of the pods and they're, like, space pajamas.
0: Alien is, like, the big, like, the archetypal example Yeah, and then
1: you kind of, like... You've been asleep for 12, 15 years, you know, and so, like, talking about the reality of, like, oh, she needs a haircut, her nails are really long, she can't move her body because her muscles are frozen, and, like, that kind of, like, realistic and thoughtful detail of what space travel is actually like really sort of sets the mood that this is going to be not just, like, a guns blazing space heist, you know, it's going to be, like, a thoughtful... Well, sort of thought out book about the effects of like space on the human body, and I really like that. And I like the idea where she gets into it like further on in the book, but she talks about this concept that she has called like soma forming.
0: Yeah, that's the way they get around the idea that like long space, she talks about it directly like, right, space is full of radiation and all sorts of other hardships. And, like, these other planets, these exoplanets, are Earth-like. The operative word is like. They're not actually Earth. So they're going to have all these physical differences. And so the way they get around it is this idea of somoforming, which is while they're in their sleep, which is not like a cryo-sleep, Like, it's just like a long-induced sleep. Their body is subtly genetically modified to deal with, these new environments on these new planets. So every time they wake up, it's they've aged a bunch because it's years between planets, but also they're different physically because their genes have been changed. And I think the the thing that's most emblematic, I agree with what you were saying about like the, the attention to these small details and like it grounding the story. And I think the detail that sticks out the most to me that like, when I read that, it happens very early on, but when I read it, I was like, I'm totally solo in this story is she makes a point about how there's a mirror in the room when they wake up, but it is not directly in line of the pod. They get to choose when they have to see each other, and it's like, that's when they have to see themselves. And I was like, that's so, like, thoughtful and well-realized. Like, I was like, any place you want to take me, uh, Chambers, I'm, I'm willing to go after that detail.
1: Well, because that's almost how, like, it's so human-like. It's like a detail that's exactly like how a human would feel after waking up after a long period.
0: Yeah, and if it's also like, if this was like a private space exploration thing, the mirror would be like on the ceiling directly above your pod just to make it the most efficient. Like, boop, you get up and you see yourself. And everyone would have like a freak out the second they saw themselves.
1: I also like the concept of you, the sort of, the modifications that happen to the human body are temporary and can be modified based on the environment that they're going into. And then things like, you know, we learn later about um, Jack being a trans man and the hormones that he needs are put in his patch Mm. so that each person's patch is customized to what they need medically and emotionally. And I think that really helps. And I like the idea like like some of the stuff is kind of, kind of like genetic modification that kind of is like questionable like they're when they go to the one planet and it's has a very long night mm-hmm. and they have these patches and the patches give their skin like this sheen that makes them look like they're glitter so that yeah. they can find each other in a dark that's a nice touch but it's kind of like
0: it's explained in a logical enough way that i don't question like why you would need glitter skin because they they do justify where it's like you know it's like wearing a reflective jacket that you that you can't take off.
1: Well, some of the... I mean, it kind of makes sense because, like, a lot of science fiction movies rely on, like, this sort of bioengineering to, like, make people compatible with space. This kind of idea of, like, a passive kind of hormonal change that can you can go through. Like, there's one planet that has more gravity, mm-hmm. so the patches are modified so that they have a larger muscle mass so that they can move about more comfortably on the planet and I think that's the kind of you know instead of being like oh we put on a big tech suit and we punched each other Mm -hmm. that's sort of how like I don't know I think of like some of the technology that we have like I mean it's rapidly increased like the, the quality of cell phones has rapidly increased but like The technology that we use now that makes our lives better in the 1940s, some of the sci-fi magazines were kind of like, you know, in 2025, we're going to be in our hovercrafts and like, or we're going to have like built on computers or cyber. I mean, we might have some basic things like that, but I think that science is going to adapt to the culture that we have. Not, we're not going to like immediately go to like a Star Wars world, like, you know, 2040, we're not going to be, like, going to the moon to, like, the moon speakeasy, like, some of these kind of weirder science fiction things. But, like, we are going to have things like... Because we have them now. Patches to, like, regulate people's diseases. Sure. And, you know, like, insulin pumps and things like that. They're kind of, like, bioengineering in a certain way. Yeah. But I think, like, her idea of, like, a patch that makes you compatible in space seems more realistic and more probable than like a tech suit like
0: from yeah. like, i also think it has the the advantage of like the time scale it operates on makes it more believable because it doesn't happen instantaneously they're not like turning into the lizard like where it's like one panel they are kirk connors in the next panel they're in full lizard mode the The soma forming happens while they're in the sleep, and they're in sleeping for like a decade or more, yes, at a time. So it's like it is a gradual process.
1: So I think, I mean, the story is about space travel, but it's also about the relationship of these four astronauts who are working together for a long, extended period of time, mm-hmm. and the choices and sort of the loneliness that they deal with making a decision to live in space for 70 or 80 years. Is yeah. that like, they talk about it at one part where she says, where they say goodbye to their family.
0: Oh, God. That was, like, the the reality of that, which gets glossed over so often in, like, you know, you want like, this alien is, like I said, you know, has a similar vibe of, like, people out in space and the loneliness. They wake up from sleeping for a long time. But, like... Alien, you never see them not on the ship. And, like, so much stuff that's about space travel glosses over the, like, human cost of it on your personal relationships. And the fact that she doesn't just describe the process of um, leaving your family, but she describes the process. Like, it's, like, a, a thing that they've thought about and worked out a protocol for, like when you're going to leave to go on a 70-year space mission and probably never see anyone that you love ever again, I feel like those grounded details make it all the more heartbreaking. Like, you really feel it. You can't help... Because it's laid out as this process that you can slot anyone into, I don't think you can't help but slot yourself into it, right? Well,
1: I think that's what it is. And I think, like, you may never go on a 70-year
0: space mission. Yeah, but you go to college. Yeah,
1: but you and you also understand sort of what this underlying story is about is sort of like the loneliness of modern society. True. Sure. And it's like, they go on a space mission because they care about science, but what they're agreeing to is to spend the rest of their life with only four people. Because, yeah. I mean, spoiler alert, we're going to talk about the end of the story, but they don't even know by the time they visit the fourth planet if they can even go home. Yeah. So it's kind of like... They're choosing to do something and knowing the consequences. And then all through the story, Mm -hmm. it's peppered with this sort of remembrance that, yes, I chose to be on this ship. I chose. And they talk about, like, things that they miss. Mm -hmm. You know, and they talk about, like, missing coffee and different things that they had, you know. And they made that decision. And a lot of people, it's the same thing. I mean, like, technology... Brings us together and isolates us, and that's the same thing. Sure, yeah. Because I mean, when they're in the ship and they're getting the reports, they get the news and they download it, and then when the news stops coming,
0: ooh, yeah. Well, there's two. That's brutal. Th- well, there, that's brutal. But also, when the news does come and they're watching the news and they're getting this like compressed history of like several decades, like that. And I don't know if it's just because of the specific time when we're reading this, but like that. It, put a pit in my stomach. Like, that was, like, almost hard to read. Like, it triggered so many, like, anxieties. In a good way. Like, I think that's great.
1: Yeah, that's that's really but great it, storytelling It right made there. me, like,
0: I was like, oh, God. Like, thinking about, like, what if, you know, I had dropped off the face of the earth in the year 2000 and had to get caught up on the last 20 years? Like, that would be horrific.
1: But I think also, I mean, this... I think we read this book... At a nearly perfect time Mm -hmm. to read
0: this book. Yeah, I agree.
1: Because, I mean, we're reading this book during a pandemic where people are isolating each other and information from so many different sources is sort of fractured and you're sort of relying on trying to get information about the outside world while you're inside from sources where they don't also have information. When they're trying to figure out what is going on on Earth... And they got, and they're getting information that's 14 years old, or they're getting information that's fragmented and they can see sort of signs that like society Mm -hmm. is breaking down, but they can't sort of ask questions. It sort of lends to that sort of like frenetic, like anxiety that they have. And one of the planets that they visit, which I think is the third planet, it's like a water planet and they're stuck in their spaceship.
0: I love that part so much it's so awful and uncomfortable and i was like smiling like a newborn baby throughout that whole chapter when they're besieged by screaming slugs i was like this this is the best i love this so much
1: you're sitting in a chair in the middle of a pandemic and you're stuck at home and at this point it's been almost two months Mm -hmm. since this has been going on and it's like you haven't Talk to, I mean, you talk to the people that you talk to that are part of like your main support system, but there's a sort of like peripheral amount of people that you have no contact with and you don't, there's no exchange of information and, and, and you feel that way. I mean, I finished reading the story on the day where we were having a really bad storms and we couldn't even go outside for like our 15 minute walk or whatever. So I kind of, I really related to that sort of sense of anxiety of being like trapped and under-informed, and sort of...
0: You don't know when it's going to stop. Like, that was the thing that really got me. I mean, it's one of those beautiful fictional scenarios where it's, like, a piece of fiction that makes your reality feel more real.
1: Right, and I think that's exactly what I was saying. It's like, we read this book. Like, read this book now. Yes, absolutely read it now. this is the best time to read this book. Okay,
0: before we get into any spoilers, I do want to say that. Like, this book fucking rules... It's like if you like science fiction like at all especially if you like hard science fiction especially if you like the stuff I talked about like rendezvous with Rama, go read this. I mean it's a pretty short read uh, and it has that like um, momentum where like once you get like halfway through the like, through the book like you're gonna read the second half like in one sitting probably yeah. uh, absolutely go read this like if you if you trust my recommendation at all on anything, like stop this podcast, go read it, come back, listen to the rest of it, and once you're done.
1: Yeah, it is definitely a worthwhile read.
0: So. Yeah. Um what was like what were we talking about? Uh
1: so they go to the four planets.
0: Yeah, yeah. So the four planets are Acor, Mirabellus, Opera, and Votum. we don't actually get to see Votum though, right?
1: Yeah, isn't Votum the desert planet? Where they find the water?
0: Oh yeah, you're right. <laughs>
1: okay, you're, right. So you're it, right.
0: You're right. Oh, we don't get to see the. There's a fifth planet. Spoilers. Well, I already told you to go read the book, so now it's spoiler country. We can't stop here. It's spoiler country. <laughs> <That's right>. um,
1: <laughs> it's not Lovecraft country on no, HBO. No, no. It's spoiler country.
0: There's a uh, there's a fifth planet that they're debating going to. Right. right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That has a different name, and I don't remember the name for that. So
1: one. Acor is the first planet. It's the. It's an. It's an ice-based planet, mm-hmm. and they're visiting it in the time of the seasonal... Freeze. Yeah, where it's cold and it has an extended night, which is why they have the glitter.
0: Yeah, and it's kind of like a, um, what's the, is it Titan? It's like one of the J- Jupiter's moons where it's like frozen with an ocean under it. Right. And so they're on like an ice shelf above the water.
1: Yeah, and I think the first time that they find life on the planet they find these sort of bioluminescent creatures that are almost like what we think of like jellyfish that are under the sheet of ice yeah this
0: is a really beautiful sequence where they're on the planet and they're like ah it's cool it's ice we're walking on 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 uh space ice and snow for the first time and then they see the lights of all the bioluminescent creatures like this like star field under their feet start to illuminate the uh the ice shelf that they're on and in this like frenzy of discovery and excitement, they start taking all of these pictures and video of these creatures. And then they start this long, like I really liked the way she laid out the like specific process that you would have to go through to identify and create a taxonomy for alien creatures that don't have, there's lots of emphasis on the fact that whatever bias you might have that makes you read earth-like creature characteristics into these things they are aliens with no connection to the creatures we know on earth it looks like a worm don't bring any of your assumptions about what a worm is to this thing and so they have to go through each and every frame of the video and identify and draw out every creature that they think is a new creature and then there's all this stuff about like well you know this could be the same creature in a different part of its life cycle and all this stuff and i really like that I think what this does, that a lot of this type of science fiction, and also other things that I like, we've talked before on this podcast about how much I love John le Carr, which is like also very technical about people that are good at their jobs and has a lot of specifics about how the job works. And I think the thing that's really great about that stuff is you lay out the elaborate machinery of how the job works and what the job looks like when it's going well, so that you can capitalize on the very real and simple dread and anxiety of things going wrong. So she spends a lot of time establishing, like, Acor is this, like, great place where they make all these discoveries. And the same thing with uh, the second planet Mirabelis for the most of it part. And then we see things go wrong and it feels all the more real and the dread feels all the more deep. Because we know we we were there with these people when the job was going well. Like, that's going back to Alien. We never see a good day. On the Nostromo. We only see the Nostromo right before things go wrong. I mean, that's a movie. You know, they have a limited time. But you know what I'm saying.
1: So the second planet is Mirabella. So they stay there, I think, like three years. Yeah. And then they move on to the next planet, which is Mirabella's. And that's sort of like a lush, fertile, green planet. And there's lots of um, life on the planet. And I think this is really interesting because it kind of reminded me a little bit of when I... I didn't talk very kindly about the um, Bill Pullman's books. I think the last one, the Amber Spyglass. Oh yeah, we talked.
0: We did talk about the Diamond Goats,
1: right? But so this is sort of similar. She talks about the how traditionally on Earth there is, despite the sort of different styles of living
0: beings on
1: the planet, our vertebrate are like spines work one way.
0: Yeah, and there's, like, a general body plan, like, you know, a bat has wings, but its wings are still basically built on the structure of an arm, and the same thing with, like, birds, you know, bird skeletons look like dinosaur skeletons, and there's this, like, general assumption of symmetry in most complex beings on Earth, and that does not exist on Mirabellus, and it's, like, a wild fantasia of different body forms and shapes and it's very like it reminds me of um like those wayne barlow books that i was like super into as a kid with like all the different drawings of like aliens and speculative like future creatures and stuff mm-hmm. like i love all that shit yeah and I think all that's... sorts of weird mouths
1: this is has... i thought this was the saddest part of the there's a yes yes and i think like
0: that's what I'm talking about with the dread of things going wrong.
1: So they, they're on the planet and they're doing a lot of research and observing the creatures and they're making a lot of progress scientifically. And then there's a scene where they're, I guess, repacking their lab and they're putting things in this decontamination chamber where they clean all the different... So they don't cross any kind of germs over to like the planet or the planet to them. And then, I guess it's...
0: Well, they're stacking the boxes. This part is so good because there's like one thing happens and it drops all these dominoes in your brain and just like crushes your heart where you're like, you know exactly what happened and what's going to have to happen and you're dreading it the whole time and the characters are going through the exact same mental and emotional process. So they're stacking the boxes and one of the boxes that Chikandi is in charge of jumps out of the stack and smacks on the ground and starts shaking and you're like uh oh something's in that something alive and you know from the second that you make that assumption like they're gonna have to kill it whatever it is it doesn't come out of this alive whatever this thing is and they Chikandi takes responsibility and he opens the box and this thing comes out this like six legged like ferret bug thing
1: right and it's sort of like none of the creatures on the planet are hostile to them
0: well yeah because they're, they're just... not
1: aggressive their, their whole thing is to observe and to to not interact and not sort of manipulate what's going on in the planet so they're mostly there to observe and to get information
0: mm-hmm. and
1: then this small creature is stuck in the decontamination.
0: This is the first of two parts of the book where I cried.
1: Right. So then he realizes that they can't let the animal out because it's already been affected by whatever's on the ship. and They, they...
0: shot it with plasma too, which means whatever bacteria or bacteria-like organism that w- would have been on its skin has been sh- right. sheared off. Like, they can't send this thing back and there's this whole sequence this like it's pretty short because the book is pretty short but there's this it feels excruciatingly long in a good way where shikande is waiting for the creature to to calm down and it seems like he's being indecisive because he is you know throughout the book we've seen him portrayed as this like very quiet thoughtful deliberate guy and at one point they like pressure him like hey you got to do this and he says and this is the part that like really got me he's like i don't want it to die scared
1: yes so he tries to calm it but i think this is sort of when it gets kind of like it's a very emotional and very realistic thing that could happen to be put in a position where you have to make a decision like this but i mean it's kind of like it shows you that it's a different kind of science fiction because there's two ways that it could have gone in traditional science fiction they could have let it go and caused this havoc on the planet or they could have kept it as sort of a pet or a prisoner Mm-hmm. And they decided both of those were not acceptable. And they yeah, because neither of
0: those are realistic options for scientists to do. You know, this isn't fucking Prometheus, where the dude like pets the the off penis snake and turns into a zombie. Like they have procedures to follow, and he takes out this like gun thing. I forget exactly what it actually is. Uh, and he shoots it, and like, in and, an immediate in a second, his. His statement of I don't want it to die scared becomes even more heartbreaking because there's just this description of like, he shoots it and it screams and it's not dead because it doesn't operate like an earth-like creature. There's no way to know how to kill this thing. And then there's just this repeated sequence that's just like driving a nail into your heart where it's like, he shoots it, it screams, it's still screaming, he shoots it, it's still screaming and he has to shoot it over and over again until it's dead. And he's just a fucking wreck and you're a fucking wreck.
1: And then his co-workers, his colleagues, the people, they're watching from behind the yeah. door. And they're also affected because they can't help, they can't interact, and they're just watching this sort of heartbreaking thing go on.
0: And it's like the worst thing. Because like I said, the second the... the I mean, I don't know about you, but I felt this. Like the second that she describes the box hitting the ground... You know it's going to have to end with them euthanizing. Because you know how good a scientist and how solid the procedure is. You know it's going to end with them euthanizing whatever creature it is. And she just, like, she set up all the mechanisms so she can just play this out in the worst, like, play out the exact worst case scenario that you imagined in your brain.
1: Yeah, because even after it happens and the creature is dead, they can't just be like, okay, let's move on they have to go back they have to finish the process they have to finish decontaminating finish writing their reports finish doing all of the work that they need to do mm-hmm. and then they can deal with their emotional feelings
0: and like i think this part is really useful philosophically for this book because it for it to be this sort of like uh pain to science and discovery it can't just be good like it has to show you the genuinely awful things that can happen, and like it becomes this theme throughout the book. There's a, later on a really great conversation between chikande and Ariadne about like you know you want to lift up the rock to see the worms, but who asked the worms if they wanted to be seen? And the idea that like you're always kind of going to be hurting them, like the worms don't like the sunlight; they hate it when you do that. Mm-hmm. Is your knowledge worth their pain? Which becomes the central question of this, like. The book essentially asks you to have a referendum on science, and she lays out pretty, um, consu- like she lays out pretty thoroughly the arguments for and against this kind of the this this kind of um, exploration.
1: But well, I think it also shows on a greater scale, like is our pursuit of knowledge worth? the sacrifices and the you know the heartache that these scientists have to go through to get us information and i think it becomes even more heartbreaking after this happens and they go about their day and when they go to look at the computer they realize they haven't had any contact with earth in over seven months
0: yeah so there's this first sequence where they do watch the news like we talked about it's like cities get wiped out by like global warming and stuff and there's wars and it's just like just dreadful feeling and there's this sort of nice in the sort of pile of nice little character interactions there's this little part where Ariadne wakes up and tries to get everyone to watch the news with her out of a sense of obligation and no one will and she just decides like you know what we won't watch the news like what's the point we're not there we can't do anything let's not watch it and then that becomes way more important later on when you realize they haven't been watching the news, so they haven't noticed that they haven't been getting it. And it's right. like, what does that mean? Because it's not just like, we haven't gotten a weekly update. Like, they haven't gotten an update in, like, what in years for them, and even more years for Earth, essentially.
1: Right. And I don't, is this the part where, when they do get the news report, the first time they describe the news is like a professional news report, and they get sort of a basic understanding of what's been happening in the planets mm. and they were put into their sleep, and then later on when they realize that things are breaking down on Earth, there's lots of global. Well, they, they, they the news report that they get is just a man like self-recording himself in an office and he's wearing a winter coat and he's kind of like hastily trying to tell them information without really explaining what's going on at Earth, and then it just cuts off.
0: So that is this part. So they notice that they're not, they haven't been getting information, and then they start going back through to try and find like some indication of what happened. And they don't ever really get a, get a confirmation, but they do get this that one last message, like you said, which is like hey, pretty hasty, and it's just this guy, and like the the office looks like crumier, and there's like sun fading on the flag behind him and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, and he's kind of wearing, like, his own winter coat. He doesn't have his uniform on. Yeah,
0: he's not, like, the guy that normally does it.
1: Yeah, so then you realize they're, like, things are not good on Earth, and you can't tell if it's a global warming, or if it's, like, environmental, or if it's, like, social. There's some kind of, like catastrophic or multiple catastrophic events taking place even I you know. at one point
0: they entertain the possibility that's like well what if people just stop caring but then it becomes clear that it's probably not just that if even if it is that which it probably isn't
1: so they're already in this sort of depressed mindset and they move on to the next planet which is opera oh, and so opera good. is a water planet and then i guess the they send these unmanned spaceships
0: in... They're satellites. They're called CubeSats, which I like because Cube is a good... I like things that are cubes.
1: So they go ahead and they identify the planets for them to explore. And they pick Opera and it's a water-based planet. And there's supposed to be four islands. And they show up at this sort of catastrophic global storm. Yeah. And they can't find the island that they're supposed to land on. so They, they can't find any to- of them. They make this decision to go to a different part of the planet and land in sort of the low-lying water area. Yeah,
0: the shallows. But the decision is—it's important because it's initially brought up, like the idea is proposed by Jack,
1: right?
0: Um, and they all agree they won't make any decision without consensus, which happens a couple times throughout the story. And they agree with consensus to land in the shallows, but. Bear in mind that the idea is suggested by Jack.
1: Yes, so they go there and then their ship is overrun by these sort of they call them the rats but they're kind of described as almost like
0: They're like slugs but they have like leech mouths sort of and they have legs but like little scampery legs and like the end of their body is kind of like this tail with holes in it that they like ...can vocalize out of... ...and they... ...latch on with their mouths... ...all over the ship... ...to the point where they can't get out... ...and they can't open it... ...and they're crawling around... ...on the cover... ...on the... ...on the... hull. ...and then... ...when they're in distress... ...they... ...whip their tails... ...and scream... ...this like... ...awful... ...blood-curdling scream... ...that like... ...Ariadne talks about it like... ...activating the like... ...primal flight response in, like, her lizard brain, when she hears it. And they are besieged by the rats for months.
1: Right. And they can't leave the ship. And they can't do their work because they can't... They can only set up a lab, but they can't do any research. They can't
0: sleep. Yes. Because (laughs) the things are screaming and they're awful. And, like, Ariane talks about, like, wrestling with this resentment she starts to feel towards the rats, which she knows she shouldn't because, like they're just living creatures and I'm a science person and I know that like that's just their nature but also they're gross and scary and they won't leave us alone
1: yeah and I think this sort of speaks a lot about this sort of this sense of like loneliness and like isolation and like fear and boredom and how each of them sort of deals with it in a separate way like Alana wants to keep people focused and working. So she starts going through all of these sort of mundane tasks of like checking, like doing safety checks and doing, um, you know, inventories and things like that. And like, I think it's, is it like Jack who like just sort of breaks down? Well, Jack
0: blames himself and he starts just like he spends every day pounding on the hole trying to get the rats to leave. And I really like this character moment. It was very relatable to me. I'm sure for a lot of people, it probably didn't have as much of an effect as it did for me. But it's like a very personal thing where it's like you make a bad decision, right? Like he said, let's go to the shallows and it didn't turn out well. And then people that worked with you when you're making the decision, in this case Ariadne, is like, well, we had consensus. We all agreed. It's not your fault. And then the, like, the, the awful worm of self-loathing in your brain twists it and it's like, you're not just dumb. You're a dangerous combination of dumb and charismatic that makes p- other people do dumb things because you want to do them, which is like very real for me. That is a like that is a specific sort of uh, internal conflict uh, that I haven't seen dealt with like as directly in a lot of fiction that I really appreciated. As someone who is dumb and charismatic,
1: yeah, I think I mean <laughs> they're kind of they're torn between their desire to stay on mission and to learn more. And I think there's like
0: Well it's also this thing where if they take off, it'll kill the worm. It'll kill the the rats.
1: Right. But ultimately they make a decision that it's it, the being in that situation is not healthy mentally for them. And they decide Well yeah.
0: We and it's like what's the point of being out here if we can't do your mission? You like, that's the thing so Ariane turns inward and starts like having a lot of philosophical and personal reflections on the idea of home and what that means which becomes important to the general to her a, a decision she proposes later on in the book and then Chikandi sort of turns inward and is reflecting about their mission and then this is when he and Ariane have the worms under the rock conversation right and then Jack Wallace and self-loathing and Elena is like dives into procedure and protocol. And there's this nice, that's, this is really where the thing comes to head with like the friction between her and Ariadne where like Elena keeps doing that thing. Like anybody that's worked in any job, but especially one where you have any level of autonomy has experienced this thing where people ask you if you did a thing that you definitely did or you're about to do. And it feels like, it's like, yeah, I did i did it i ran the product the pro- i ran the the diagnostic and it's like well, do you want me to run it right now and like it's not it doesn't devolve into this big conflict and it doesn't make like elena evil or anything but it's a nice like little portrait of like the kinds of frictions that erupt when people are working together in a close space well i
1: think it's the same it's almost like a group project where everyone is equal at some point there is someone who tries to assert yeah, it's dominance like they, to be the boss, even if it's like a situation where there's no boss needed. They're
0: not, they're not a bad person, but it's like they do just think they're at least slightly smarter than everybody yeah, else.
1: Exactly, and, and I mean, think she takes advantage of when they're all having this sort of existential crisis because they're having this sort of mild case of like space mm-hmm. madness or even cabin fever. I mean, there's, they're just none of them can do like. I guess Jack at one point starts talking about like he just wants to see some dirt, some like rocks. He wants to like touch something that's not water and I feel like. Then you like I guess they all realize at some point that they need to do something like this inertia of being on this water planet and mm-hmm. waiting and they try different things to get rid of the rats that are stuck to the hole and then they finally decide that they have to just escape. Well so also uh, blast
0: off when they look out the other rocks in the area have the rats on them. So it's like this might just be a thing they do all the time. Like there might be no getting them off. This might just be how they live.
1: Right. Yeah. Um, like, they're almost like barnacles of some sort.
0: Yeah awful screaming barnacles so they take off and the process of taking off like excinerates the rats that stay on the ship when it takes off and there's this really great part where Ariadne's like yeah like I liked it and I relished it and there was like a feeling of spite and like I hate myself for that but also like that's just how I felt and there was nothing I could do about it which again like very real
1: so then they decide to move earlier than planned onto the fourth planet Votum which is identified as a desert planet and it's expected or it's sort of speculated that there's no water and it's, I think it's Jack who decides that he he wants to take a bet that there's water on the planet because he believes there is. So he says it's in a cave. He, he his, but just bets
0: there are caves. Right. But yeah, because they find a canyon. So it's like there was water at some point because uh, otherwise you can't make a canyon. And so he bets that there are caves and then they find water in the canyon and eventually do find caves. But the big thing that happens on this planet is Chicande when which I guess is kind of like almost like a moment of um it is him, right?
1: Yeah.
0: It's almost like a moment of like redemption for having to shoot that thing on Mirabellis. He uh discovers like single celled life forms right, in the in... trickle of water in the canyon.
1: Yeah, and that's when they decide that... They come to this conclusion, which I thought was really interesting, about right- and left-handed amino acids. Yeah. And how the building very... blocks of Earth are one way and different planets are different ways. And then they come to a planet that sort of has amino acids that are ambidextrous, that can be left- or right-sided. Yeah. And they realize that this this poises this planet for an evolution that... Might be different from Earth, but would go the same way where other creatures could be developed on this planet let life could exist on this planet
0: well yeah, it it's i it, uh, I like it because it's like very exciting and it's this huge discovery, but it doesn't like definitively teach anything, but it raises the possibility that um life the chirality that's the term for the orientation of the the molecules that the chirality bias of life on other planets including earth is probably set by um meteorites that have the organic molecules on them and so it's not a given that life always will have that bias and that means also probably that whatever life is on votum didn't come from a meteorite or it came from like multiple ones or something
1: i also i mean this and also at the same time that this is happening they get in contact with a different, another spaceship that's on a different um,
0: mission. One mission. of the other Lockie Lockie missions. number five,
1: and they learn that they also lost contact with Earth, but they are close enough to Earth that they can return home.
0: Well, they have returned to Earth. They realize they can't aren't getting any signal from the surface, implying that there was some kind of like EMP event. They can get a signal from the moon base, but that's like automated. So there's no guarantee that there are people there or that things are even really functional. And so they have this, um, they learn now that like something has gone wrong on earth and like, doesn't necessarily mean everyone's wiped out, but it does mean that this, like like, the situation is very different and people's priorities are very different now.
1: So then LeWicky 5 decides that they will go home. And then they will try to get in contact with them to let them know what's going on. And then that's the last you hear of them. They never get back to them. But I think it's like an interesting juxtaposition that they're on a planet that's poised to grow life. Learning about their own planet, which they believe now. And even more so believe that the planet is dead.
0: Well, I don't think that they do believe that the planet is dead. There is just the possibility... But they seem to. What the assumption seems to be is that people are probably still there, but like all their technology has been wiped out. There's a part where the structure of the book is um, it is a message that Ariadne is transmitting to Earth, and she's addressing. We have got our own rats <laughs> scratching at the the door. I'm just gonna. Should I just let them in? Just let them in. It's a. If I don't edit this out, people just know that it's the cat. You coming in? You got it, dude. Come on. <laughs> so yeah, it's a message that she is leaving to the future, or to people on Earth. And so the decision they end up making that's proposed by Ariadne is, you know, we have enough fuel and resources to go back to Earth like we're supposed to. Or we can go to one of these other planets that they had considered, but were too far away to do with a return mission. Because one of the things they say is, like, part of OCA's credo is they don't want to send anyone on a suicide mission. Right. And they're like, we can go on this mission and go to this planet, but if we do, we'll never come back. And what they ultimately decide to do, which they a the decision they make when they reach consensus, is they're all going to go to sleep, they're going to send out this message, they're going to turn set their drive to respond to a return signal from Earth, and... The people on Earth, when they get the message, whenever they do get it, will get to make the decision. If they say, like, yes, we want you to explore that planet, then we'll go there. If they say, we want you to come back to Earth, we don't really care about this kind of exploration or whatever, well, you, it'll send them home. And if they never get any response, then they all will just float in space and die in stasis. And they're okay with any of those options happening.
1: I like that the decision that they're making is like a crowd decision. Yeah. Which I think is sort of reinforces that concept of like citizen funded space exploration. Like you tell us to go on or you tell us to come home and we'll do either of those things, but we'll just wait to hear from you. Because yeah. they never get any sign directly from Earth after their last transmission that the program exists that the earth exists that the people are still working on this program and i kind of feel like if it was such a robust space program they wouldn't just abandon it they would be if they could continue the or get messages they would keep doing it
0: yeah i think that is the idea where it's like they do talk about that directly like somebody would be there like something had to have happened or they can't send messages which is probably is the case once they get the information from the other locky mission
1: and i think this is what you were saying it's a sad ending because they're sort of in sort of this flux state where they don't know what's happening but there is this sort of hopeful ending where they say like we'll wait for you to tell us and you know then we'll do we'll continue our mission and
0: then this is the second part of the book where i cried um, yeah, that was very sad. But yeah, that's like the Lorax ending I was talking about, where it turns the camera back on you, and it's like, well, what are you gonna do? And that's what I was talking about with the like, you know, this is this is my, you know, thesis on science and exploration, and it's like, are you gonna break my heart, Earth, like, or are we gonna, you know, see the stars and accomplish something great? Wait,
1: this is what I was talking about, like I said earlier. It's like a modern take on this sort of traditional sci-fi about like humans in space and i was thinking like i thought ta- i thought about the star pit but i also thought about like kim stanley robinson's mars tree tri uh
0: yeah yeah trilogy Trilogy.
1: the word is trilogy where it's like they're humans in space but they terraform the space that fit the needs of the humans mm-hmm. and then they pretty much have like human problems on a new planet like they don't use that opportunity to learn anything about growth as humans or creating a new society they create the same kind of society and the same problems sure and i thought like this was like an interesting take on that but i also thought it was like interesting that it wasn't about like you know like profit from space like i think about something like Frederick Pohl, his gateway where Mm -hmm. it was like they're space miners and they discover this sort of um, future planet with these sort of advanced humans and they have like this sort of technology that they left on the planet and their way of dealing with it is to mine it for profit, mm-hmm. which I think is kind of like, that's a very human thing to do, of course. Yeah.
0: And then like on the other extreme end, there's like starship troopers like where it's like here's a weird creature we don't understand let's blow it up Mm -hmm. like which is this this has a moment in the story that is like mechanically like a starship troopers moment a guy shoots an alien with a laser and it is horrific and heartbreaking
1: well i i'm gonna steal something from nate and and
0: everybody does it's fine
1: and flip it right over a lot of science fiction is about colonialism sure
0: absolutely yeah i've talked about it a ton
1: this This is an instance where space travel is not about colonialism, well, yeah, it's a,
0: a lot of this story is a struggle to envision an exploration divorced from colonialism, which I think is a very noble uh effort, and I really appreciate it and I like that this also is very collectivist it's not this like a lot of science fiction is rooted in this very individualistic objectivist kind of even Star Trek, which has the like beautiful communist future has a lot of the like western dna of like the lone powerful captain making these important unilateral decisions and this is like not about that at all which i find very refreshing and you know kind of inspiring
1: i also think it's nice to read a sci-fi story that doesn't have a robot or secret robot or or a mad robot or anything like that or tech or technology that's bad or hurts people. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying like technology is great and doesn't hurt people. Now we have to let the cat out.
0: The classic cat problem. <laughs> you know, so I like that. i get back in in like seconds. I also,
1: I mean, I know there's a lot of talk right now about sort of women writing science fiction and the value of having women be encouraged to write and be creative, especially like in a genre like this. And I think like it does create like, you know, a nice diversity, you know, it brings in different points of views, different sort of ideas about science and humanity, but I don't think it's necessarily, an issue where, you know, it's not a women in science fiction issue. It's an inclusivity issue of having writers who have different points of views and having them be able to have a sort of an area where they can express these sort of interesting ideas that they're coming up with. And in, even though it's just in science fiction, it sets a trend where we're allowing more alternative views into literature and culture which i think is good for everyone not just science fiction
0: sure yeah i mean i agree but also it's like all these stories that we're talking about like in contrast to this like uh you know what they all had in common yeah they were written by dudes
1: but i i feel like it's kind of a disservice to a talented writer to say like this is a woman science fiction writer yeah no she's a science fiction writer yeah, yeah. We, we've
0: talked about that before. I, mean, I get what you're saying. Um,
1: I think, like, after N.K. Jemison won three Hugo Awards in a row, I think we've evolved past the point where we have to point out someone's gender or sexual orientation as an adjective of what kind of work they do.
0: Sure, I guess. Yeah. I, I think I can agree with that. Um,
1: I also, I mean, we talked about this before, about women using pseudonyms or using initials to sort of hide the fact that they're women because they don't feel like they're going to be accepted as writers
0: i had a, I was wondering when i was reading this i was like it's becky chambers right it says becky chambers yeah. on the cover i was wondering if she's good specifically by becky chambers because rebecca chambers is a resident evil character
1: maybe and i was going to make a
0: joke at some point that this book pretending like i thought this book was written by the resident evil character but i totally forgot to do that until right now <laughs> I don't think that's an important detail, but it was something that I thought of at least once while I was reading this.
1: But, I mean, I really like, I like the way that, I like her style of writing. Mm-hmm. I like what she had to say. I like the sort of sensitive details that she put in there. And I like this sort of idea, if there even is such a thing, you know, there's world building, but is there, like, technology building? Yeah, I and mean,
0: I think, I mean, I think that's honestly a part of world building, like, I mean, it's tr- she's trying to build a world, the starting point of which is our world. But it's still it's still world building, just because like she's not inventing a new language and, and um, form of currency. It's still I think it's still world building.
1: Yeah, I mean, I th- I just I think it would world- make a great like mini series. Oh yeah, like, like- visually, I think it would be a very beautiful mini series i like the characters i don't know if she's planning to write more in this world kind of like in today's publishing environment you have to have like everything has to be like a trilogy yeah. or a series or whatnot i mean even as a standalone novel it's perfect
0: i was gonna ask because this has a very open i think that... i'm sorry i think because this has a very open ended ending the natural question that comes to mind is like should there be a sequel uh-huh. i know how i feel but do you would you want a sequel do you think there should be a sequel where we like find out the the fate of uh the meridian and like see this other planet because like, there's some sort of implication that like of the, all the other planets this was the one that was is maybe most likely to have intelligent life on it
1: i i mean i'm fine with no sequel
0: I don't want there to be a sequel, like, at all. I I love the, like I said, I love the Lorax ending. I like the open-endedness. I would like to see something that's maybe a spiritual sequel. I would love to read, and I don't know if Wayfarers is like this, but I would love to read her, uh, a Becky Chambers book about First Contact. That it handles it with the same sort of style and care that this handles exploration.
1: Yeah, I mean, that would be interesting.
0: Or maybe not even first contact. Maybe something that's set later. Like I'm just saying, I'd like to. I'd read her writing about alien, like intelligent aliens. I think that would be really cool. But I don't want necessarily want to read about Ariadne interacting with extraterrestrial aliens. I like the. I want that question mark to still be there. I mean, I've been thinking about this recently because I uh, they did the re- remake of Final Fantasy VII, and there's been a bunch of like. Over the years, because Final Fantasy VII is very successful, they've touched that property a lot. And it's all really bummed me out because the original book... The original, not book, game, has this really cool open-ended question where... Open-ended ending where you don't know if humanity has been wiped out or not. Very similar to this. And all the, like, sequels and supplemental material have, like, totally stomped all over the ambiguity of that ending. So anything we can do to (laughs) preserve ambiguity in this age where... The franchiseation of all media has turned it into an endangered species. uh, I totally support.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't really know if, I don't think a sequel is needed, but I would be interested to read one if it was done. I mean, I'd
0: read it if it happened, but I would prefer that it not.
1: Yeah, and I don't know if this necessarily. I mean, we talked when we read, um, murder, the murder, the first murder by Martha Wells, the novella. That kind of story and structure sort of lends itself to like multiple stories because, you know, the adventures of Murderbot leads to different worlds, can can be expanded in a natural well, yeah. way.
0: And there's no, I can't imagine a, a human on Earth or anywhere in the galaxy who gets to the end of Murderbot and thinks that Murderbot's character arc is complete. Yeah. Like, I mean, I I love that book and I love that character, but like... There's more journey to be had, for sure. Which I don't feel that way at the end of this. Like, I I think I got enough of of Ariadne and the crew.
1: Well, I had finished the series, the four novellas. And I recently was reading about... She is either working on a full-length novel or at this point has finished a full-length novel about Murderbot and the continuing of her adventures. And I'm excited to read that. I know we only talked about the first...
0: I, th- I think we'll we will eventually do the other ones on this podcast because I haven't as much as I liked Murderbot I have not gotten around to reading the other ones because uh, I'm bad at finishing series we've talked about that before <laughs> on this podcast and I think having the podcast force me to do it would be maybe we'll do it as a series like we've done the comics we'll do like three in a row. And we'll do some, like, one-shots of the comics during that time period. But that is a discussion for you and I to have off the podcast.
1: I'm very interested in finding out who wins the Hugo.
0: I think there's the... Now we
1: have, like, a horse in the race. We've read one of the novellas. So we have something to root
0: for. It's a pretty stacked year. There's lots of writers that I really like that are, are up. I mean, uh, Charlie Jane Andrews is up, and we've talked a lot on this. Po- well, not a lot. but I've mentioned that she follows me on Twitter a lot, but I like her... <laughs> writing a lot. I keep saying a lot because I've had too much coffee.
1: I read one of her short... I really enjoyed the short story. I talked about this in a previous podcast. Mm -hmm. The People's Alternative History. Alternative
0: Future? Or the People's Future of the United States. That's what it's called, right?
1: Yeah, Something like that. Because
0: it's like a reference to the Howard Zinn.
1: Right. That short story compilation, she has a story in there. Mm -hmm. And it was very good.
0: Yeah. It's too long to do on this for our show, but um i would like to at some point talk in I uh, talk to someone in a recorded space about uh all the birds in the sky yeah because that book's fucking great all right uh do we have anything else to say we've we've really i feel like we've we're not that much longer than a normal episode but i feel like we've talked a lot
1: well this was a really worthwhile novel i like you said go ahead and read it it's worth it it's She's an interesting writer. She doesn't have a large body of work at this point. She just has the one series and this. But I feel she's very talented, very imaginative, and I think she'll have more work that would also be of interest. So she's definitely a a writer to watch.
0: Yeah, and like I said, if you didn't take my recommendation earlier, still go back and read it. Even though we've spoiled the quote-unquote plot of it, I think there's like lots... So much of this is about the grounded, concrete details that I feel like knowing what's going to happen isn't really going to affect her enjoyment all that much.
1: Oh, yeah. And then the style that she writes in, she has sort of a sparse, kind of very thoughtful, kind of technical style of writing that's very interesting. Yeah, I admire people that can
0: do that very effectively because I tend to be a very flowery writer. And like I every time I try to write like that, it feels weird. And I don't I don't know how people do it, but I, I really appreciate when it's done well. I do too. Alright. Um
1: So what do we have up next?
0: Uh we are gonna do the Wicked and Divine Volume Three. I forget what the, the title of that volume is. Do you you don't remember off the top of your head, do you? Do you want me to look it up or
1: No, nah, we're fine.
0: Yeah, we're doing the Wicked and Divine Volume Three and then um listen to that episode because we'll announce the novella and the well you already know the comic for the month after that it's going to be the Wicked and Divine Volume 4 but (laughs) listen to the Wicked and Divine episode and we'll announce the next novella right Uh, and uh, in the meantime uh, spoiler alert stay tuned
1: bye everyone